I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club Podcast. I'm your co-host, Hoy, and with me is the refined and well-bred, <laughs> not-at-all-caveman-like, Jeff Goad. <laughs> Thank you. Hello. This week, we're covering Edgar Rice Burroughs' Pellucidar, and we're very honored to have with us, as our special guest, DCC author extraordinaire Harley Stroh. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on. Yay, Harley. Great to have you here. So, Harley... Um, I guess what we normally do with all our guests is ask them how they first got into gaming and if they were aware of Appendix N as a concept when they when they were gaming. Um, yeah, I, my my uh, my babysitter ran Dungeons and Dragons for me when I was eight. Uh, we went into uh, Keep on the Borderlands, Caves of Chaos, and uh, my 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 character died in the first pit when you go into the Kobold Lair, and I've been gaming ever since. Um, nice, and then. You know, through grade school and high school, I read a lot of Robert E. Howard, um, came across Lankmar. And so, you know, those influences have kind of been, you know, with me ever since I was just, you know, a little geek in second grade. Mm-hmm. So it was initially Swords and Sorcery was your, your oh, sort of main character yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. For a long time, you know, it was a really big deal to keep, you know, the science, the, the chocolate out of the vanilla, you know, the science fiction and the, and the, and the fantasy didn't cross. Okay. And were you aware of Appendix N as a concept while you were reading all this stuff? Or was oh, that no, much not later? At all. Not at all. Okay. No, you know, I think it was the, probably it was the Frazetta covers. Like, you know, you're like, you're a little kid back when there was still card catalogs and you just like paw through the stacks and occasionally you come across the book that looks cool. And, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, I had no clue of Appendix N okay. at all. But, so, but speaking of Frazetta, so then uh, obviously uh, that was the era of all the Burroughs, uh, Burroughs with the Frazetta covers. So you were heavily into Burroughs at the time as well, or is this much a later thing? No, it was, it was probably a later thing. Cause you know, it was still the Robert E. Howard um, Frazetta covers. I mean, you know, right. to this day, you know, uh, Frazetta is just, it's, you know, probably for my, myself more than Appendix N, it's the art of Appendix N that is really inspiring. Like I would, I would love to hear you guys at some point, um, like, yeah, like speak to, I mean, there's the Appendix N literature that informs our gaming, but there's also this great back catalog of Appendix N art, which has informed, you know, modern artists. You know, like when we write, we write to these images and so many of those images are born out of Appendix N literature just by the covers. Sure, for sure. I mean, some of the uh, other guest hosts we've had on are very strong on that, such as Fletcher we had last week. He's very mm-hmm. knowledgeable. Or the other week, I should say. But yeah, if the Frazetta covers, Roy Krenkel. Right, um, right, right. Yeah. All the other incredible uh, artists um yeah that would be a great maybe would she do that as at least as part of the show notes and maybe sidebar episode with sure. the, the artists um okay so uh that brings us i guess to uh this week we're reading uh pellucidar and since you mentioned artists uh what copy are you reading there jeff well i haven't i have in my hand your copy because i'm a total dork and the copy that I have is the 1960 at, – at the copy that I have at home that I'm supposed to have with me right now is the 1962 first edition ace paperback with the Roy Krenkel Jr. cover where Diane the Beautiful has a spear and she's kind of fighting off a saber-toothed tiger and there's a bunch of Mayhars in the background. And I spent 
hours this morning going over my paperback, looking at all of the things that I had highlighted and notes I had taken, and I had written out my notes for the episode. But when I got on the subway today, I realized I forgot to grab the book or the notes. Oh. So I have I have none of that with me today. <laughs> so instead, I'm holding in my hand Hoy's copy. Right. But I've taken away his highlighter. <laughs> <laughs> the highlighter is confiscated. So Hoy, do you want to tell us about the copy that you have? I have this copy. I was actually alternating between reading an ebook copy, but this is the 1970 Ace Edition. With the uh, as we were saying, for, uh, Frank Rosetta cover. I guess that's Diane the Beautiful, although you mostly see her rump. And it's, uh, again, Saber Tiger. Diane and, the Bootyful. Right, Diane the Bootyful, <laughs> and a bunch of Mayhars, I, I presume as well. And maybe this, um, the, uh, the that little moon that sort of floats above Pellucidar. Oh, right, in the background. Good catch. Yeah, clever. So. I like that. I and, haven't uh, seen that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, which copy are you reading, Harley? Well, it's the same cover. It's the second Ace printing, September 1972. Okay. Yeah, I mean, this was this must have been incredibly eye catching back in the day when you were just like pawing through the uh, spinner racks at a drugstore or something oh, like dude, that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, <you> know, <laughs> what twelve year old kid is gonna like? Yeah, there's there's tigers, there's weird you know ter- pteranodon things going down, <laughs> half naked woman, yeah, right. And uh, then uh, on the back here, we've got a little bit of a uh, hint as to what the storyline is about. Okay, it says. In the incredible world inside the earth, David Innes discovers a new frontier for mankind. He strove to carve a civilization out of its Stone Age perils. But the kidnapping of the beautiful cave woman empress, Diane, made him drop his fight for advancement and enter into a still greater battle against all the primitive monsters of Pellucidar. <laughs> so before we head into the library to discuss this in, in greater detail, let's quickly uh, go on over to our Hygaxian word of the day. Bandolier. Bandolier. Oh, <laughs> right on. <laughs> so normally I will have had a highlighted section where that word appeared and a page number so I could read to you exactly where in the book it said bandolier. But since all of that is sitting on my bed in my apartment, uh, I do not have that with me. So you'll just have to trust me that the word bandolier is located somewhere within the text. I think it's when David returns from the surface world and he's you know, armed as like to the yes. teeth with you know, <laughs> right. elephant gun and yeah. his pistol. He's walking and, around like Rambo. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Did you guys uh, ever find out what an express rifle was? I, did, uh, I, I didn't look that up. I meant to, but. That was basically a term for, uh, before they used the word magnum for the really heavy duty like hunting <laughs> rifle. And okay. so they would like 600 nitro or something like that. So for when they went to hunt like really big game, like, uh, you know, elk or an elephant or something like that. Right. So that's, yeah. Yeah. So that's right. it was express, a very fast flying bullet. So. <laughs> Cool. So now we're in the library, and this is the second in the Pellucidar books. So I'm curious, Harley, how much experience do you have with this series? What do you think of the series in general, and what did you specifically think of this one? Um, you know, what was interesting about about this one to me was um, some of the the uh, you know, like with the, the the saving grace at the end, and maybe I'm too far ahead, but is 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 the technology that's brought by modern man to this this primitive cave world, and how you know the the moral qualities imbued by this technology are, are here to save the world. Um, but but sorry, but that's I'm ahead of myself. But to save this, <laughs> your question, um, you know, I, I've 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 I, gosh, I read all the books, maybe. 10 or 15 years ago, I, I just reread this uh, Pellucidar, you know, explicitly for this show. Um, yeah, I, I, it was, it was good to see it again. I, I didn't like it as much as I had the first time. Yeah. Um, you know, it, 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 I, I found through the, through the whole reading, I found myself comparing it unfavorably to like, um, 
a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's, Arthur's court, or you know, like there's this there's this theme of of of, of civilized man bringing technology to a less advanced culture and thereby conquering the culture. And it seemed like Mark Twain had done it better. And I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Right. This book is definitely nakedly imperialist, as as opposed oh, yeah, to absolutely. you yeah, know, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, um, being sort of more witty and like looking for like the minor achievements to improve life. It's like okay, we're going straight for the guns and the big cannons. And it's fun. It's funny that Abner, um, the professor, is the one who actually is even more imperialist than David. He wants to go out and build a full-on frigates and steamships and cannons and explosives. <laughs> oh, yeah. He was fully prepared to start building bombs. Right. <laughs> but he doesn't want to use them. I mean, right. but he's also the sweetheart guy, right? right. Because right. He's, he's the other half of the balance wheel. It's right. Right. Venus that, that, you know, puts them to use. I don't right. know. What, what was your guys' take? Maybe mine's wrong. No, no, I think you're on. You're onto something. But, but, um, did you go back to read at the Earth's core also in addition yeah, to reading? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. I mean, I think, I think the, the, the and this is probably just because I'm a dog person. The, but, but the the part that touched me most was, you know, was reading you know, when he's tra- training, or you know, Raja. Yes. And, and what is it? Yeah. Um, yeah, these Renee, Renee, Renee. Renee. Yeah, yeah. Renee. that was such a sweet moment, and you right. know, but it exists for all of five pages, and then they right. kind of fade back into the right. You know, and these they, are these uh, giant pre pre hyena dons. These are the ancestors <laughs> to the hyenas, and it's they're so main sweet, eaters. Right? Like he, like the things dying in the ocean, and he and he and he and he rescues it. You know, even though he you know, and then you have this really sweet you know moment where they're they're both trapped here on this beach. And you know they're forced to rely upon each other, and then the relationship doesn't go anywhere. Like uh, you know, <laughs> there's this intelligent giant wolf thing, and that's like, what a sweet character. And then, and then nothing comes of it. I was like, ah, oh, come on, man. Yeah, I haven't read obviously any books beyond the second book here. I am curious whether or not Raja and Renee are going to continue to be presences in the future books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because by the end of it, I do think that they were they were still with them. They were. They were. Yeah. They were. They were doing anything i mean they weren't really doing anything you're right yeah yeah it, been, it, was, it was even sweet like and then raja takes off you know he brings his mate back yeah <laughs> that that was the part of the book that, that that really captivated me and then and then it didn't amount to much right yeah. i get the feeling that burroughs is really very much a one draft writer so he gets these yes. ideas out and then he doesn't necessarily revisit them so we have you know the um the other sort of non-human race that I guess we never learned what their name is, but this, the Gurgur, the king is right, Gurgur, right, right. uh-huh. and he's yeah, yeah, he's yeah. halfway between a gorilla and a lamb, which is ludicrous. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right. but the one-eyed one is really spooky, right? right, you know, right. Like he's like this, you know, one eye is missing, and you know the the chieftain's other eye is just you know. But it's, it's very gentle sometimes. Yeah, and I, I just picture lamb chop with like gigantic biceps. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Do you guys know is that is the geostationary moon? Does that ever come up again in the future? Uh, we haven't gotten that far. I think they mentioned it very briefly in the first book, right? And it's such a weird concept, right? Because it does it itself does rotate, so then it becomes like their atomic clock, right? It's, it's just, so cool, right? right? Yeah. Right. And just the idea of maybe you, if you if we're doing it in um, any kind of setting, you're sitting there and you see this a whole other world. It's like, well, at some point we've got to, we got to visit up there, right? We hope they do. Right? <laughs> that will definitely be a, a major uh, missed opportunity if it doesn't happen. I guess. Oh, it's right. got it, 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 it's yeah. got it. Because yeah. he was even saying like, I don't know if things live up there or not. Right. It's they're they're clearly building for something to happen there. Right. They've got to like they're going to create a rocket and the rocket's going to go up to the moon, <laughs> right. the moon in the center of the Earth. But it's like Raja. It's this really sweet idea that shows up for about five pages. Right. And I mean, then, he, he just throws off like 
more ideas, I guess, in the course of, you know, five pages than, you know, most of us can think of in like, you know, that's oh, you know, in the course of a novel. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, right. Cause this, I mean, this just, you know, the, the series has inspired, you know, whole entire genres of mm-hmm. you know, myself that you know, they're, they're trying to replicate and, and, and steal this idea of a hollow earth and, yeah. and you know, what happens when you go inside it. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I would say, you know, I, I, I did enjoy reading this, but nowhere near as much as I enjoyed reading at the center at, at the earth's core. Um, it, it didn't seem to have the same kind of uh, humor or joy. And mm-hmm. also in at this at the at the earth's core, there were really like these incredible moments like that, that that scene at the Mayhar's temple mm-hmm. is so cool. We didn't have any like big, amazing moment like that. And also it kind of felt like a lot of the storylines hinged around like, oh, no, Diane has been kidnapped again. Oh, she's been kidnapped again. Oh, she's kidnapped a third time. And it's like, oh, wait, now I've been kidnapped. Now I need to rescue myself. And it's like every time something interesting is about to happen, one of the two of them get kidnapped again. Right. right. Don't, don't turn your back in Pellucidar and whatever you do, don't fall asleep because you'll wake up and everything will be gone. Yeah, all your stuff will be stolen. They won't have killed you. They'll just have stolen all your stuff. Uh, <laughs> oh... How, uh, how about you, Hoy? How did you enjoy um, this? I would also say that, you know, and I don't want to say like this is a bandwagon, but I would definitely say that this is definitely not as fresh as Athea's core yeah. in that sense. Um, I'd also think we're, although Huja is the, the, the purported villain, like they almost never catch up with Huja. So he's, we, we don't get a sense of a really strong villain the way that the Mayhars are in the first book. That's true. Um, or or um, with the, the one-eyed, uh, the ugly one, mm-hmm. right? right? So... Um, in that sense, I think we're missing a little bit of something. And I'm not sure if – like I have to go back and figure out when this was in his um, his sort of uh, series of works. You know, I know at a certain point he was just churning them out because it was just you know so lucrative. And so it's just a, a filler book for him in a sense. Um, well, I don't know how it relates in chronology to his other books, but I do know that in terms of this particular series – this is written nine years after At the Earth's Core right. and seven years before the next one. So there's a big gap right. That's interesting. between right. each of these Pellucidor so, stories. Yeah, he maybe was not feeling this series as much, at least uh, as uh, you know Tarzan or the uh, the John Carter books. And so maybe it's like, oh, I've got a little gap in my schedule. Let me get a Pellucidor book in there, you know? Something. Yeah, yeah, possibly. Uh, but, um, you know, I think that the the strength of this book still rests on, uh, for lack of a better word, the world building, the setting, mm-hmm. right? And, and um, you know, when he goes into the um, the shadow, the land of awful shadow, right. he gets That's all so sweet. He gets all <laughs> he gets very depressed because you know it's it's gloomy, and he can see sunlight off in the you know in the far distance, but he's here in, in the shadow, and the trees are all stunted, you know. Right, right, um, right. And so, and, and the name of it, the land of awful shadow, it's great. You yeah. Know, so. I yeah. think that's that's terrific. Um, I think he doesn't oh, maybe. If, if it was a place where like the sun never went down, though, like the land of awful shadow sounds really good. That would be like, <laughs> like I'm just gonna spend half my time on this side of the eclipse and the right. other. Half, oh, I just like, build a big house like with one wing like in the dark in the shadow part and one wing in the sunny part and just walk back and forth between the two. That's a great idea. If when, <laughs> when you're tired, you go into the 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 right. wing of awful shadow, right. and when you want to wake up, you go into the the wing of right, right. Although they do mention building the first a, um, daylight. not in the land of Alpha Shadow, he does mention building a palace for himself and Diane at the end. That's like open yes. walled, so that's fresh right. air coming through. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. So, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. It's pretty funny, but uh, so this book was written ninety five years ago. Yeah, wow. What is it like reading this book from the perspective of somebody in two thousand eighteen? Oof, that's a, that's a that's a heavy question. Um, well, the thing that jumps out of me at first are 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 are, are some of the passages 
which are <laughs> pretty horrific to read. Um, I want to see if I've managed to capture one of them. At one point, um, he's trying to talk to, he's trying to speak with uh, one of the natives of Pellucidar and the, and, a, and according to David, the uh, the native is ignoring him, um, just as Native Americans ignore white men that are speaking to them, even though they understand them. They're just choosing not to respond, as you know, to carry that. Um, you know, so that that definitely to a reader today, that stands. You know, that's a kick in the head. Like you, you can't like miss that on the page. Sure. Um, and then you know, and then there's also the piece that you know the world is is there to be conquered. Yeah. You know, it's like, um, I, I mean, is there Apart from the fact that they eat humans, is there anything really evil about Mayhars? I and that's my thing. It's like it, he 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 David Ennis goes very quick into let's just completely genocide all of the Mayhars. Oh, dude, yeah. And <laughs> it's like I, I I do have some issues with that. Um, the, my my primary issues are one, they are extremely advanced creatures. That right, there's a right. lot that we could learn from. So if David Innes is so fascinated by the idea of learning and growing, it seems like he would want to find some way to work with these folks. And it's really abundantly clear from, at least in my opinion, from At the Earth's Core, that the Mayhars don't even understand that humans have the ability to think. They just think mm, that they're like right. stock animals right, right, that they can right. breed and eat and make them to be make right. them be slaves. And the Mayhars don't treat humans any worse than humans in our real world treat chickens and cows. Right. Probably a lot better. Probably <laughs> a lot better right. in a lot, lot of ways. Right. I mean, it's purely Darwinian upon David's part, I guess. But here's actually an interesting passage since you mentioned David seeking knowledge. I did find one. Uh, so you remember he's um, – He's put out and he's got to like farm his melon patch for mm-hmm. a while. Yes. He, oh, yeah. <laughs> but he adds weeds, right? right? He adds weeds so that his melons never grow. <laughs> so they're, they're like, oh, you're incompetent. Get off the melon patch. But, he goes, <laughs> but as for knowledge, he says, for the monotony of my existence in the melon patch must have fostered that trait of my curiosity from which it had always been my secret boast that I am peculiarly free. <laughs> so, he, so, so he's just saying that he actually never had any curiosity, intellectual curiosity whatsoever. <laughs> right. He's bored out of his skull. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so that was kind of funny. And then I think later funny. on, he does mention that like, cause Abner's the one who wants to invite all this, like new, the, you know, all these other military technologies. Dave's like, no, this is just the necessary part. So that we can secure a human domain, and I don't want to bring all that other bad stuff that's on the surface of the planet back down. Right? Yeah. But that was that was fascinating. Yeah. Can we look at that for just a second? Yeah. Because that was that was really because that was about the time where they like um, you know so they've they've introduced gunpowder and like and like ships you know you know and cannons and all that, but they get to money and they're like whoa 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 that's a bridge too far. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to share no, money with these no, people. No, that's no. the root of all evil. Right. But uh, hey, you know, caveman, there here, have a cannon. Right. You know, um, I can kind of get behind that, though. That, right. That's something where I, I, I'm really down with Burroughs and David Innes on, on that aspect. Well, it's actually it. strangely socialistic, right? Because like, you, you're allowed to produce something and you're allowed to trade it for something else. Uh, right at the end, but you're not allowed right. to retrade that thing, right? So there's no more the middle. There's no middlemen allowed, right? So like, oh, I've got too many melons. I want a hoe. I can trade my melon to the guy who right. built the hoe, right? <laughs> yeah. But I can't say take that hoe and say, you know what? I'm going to trade this hoe. I've got two hoes now. I'm going to trade that hoe for a chicken. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So but like, I mean, there is an efficiency to money, right. whether or not it gets used for you right. know moral or immoral purposes. Right. Like, it, it, it's a technology that serves a tool, right? right. Sure. You know, like, like, I mean, even if it's just like we're going to 
mark things on this clay tablet like right. oh you, you know hoy's ho is worth three chickens okay well that's established now right you know anytime somebody with five melons well that's only half a chicken i mean you know like, <laughs> right, right. right but we have but we have cannons so yeah. that's cool and we have we have uh yeah we have cannons we've made all these captains on the ships into dukes and then right 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 <laughs> well, then, yeah yeah one of them was Right. There's yeah. a bunch of kings. Yep, right. yep. And we're going to explain to you what that hierarchy means. That was the cool part. He's like, he he knights them, yeah. and then he leaves it to Abner to uh, to 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 kind of explain, you know, why this is a cool thing. Right, right. Um, One thing that I thought was interesting was um, Edgar Rice Burroughs's treatment of women, and specifically Diane the Beautiful. Uh-huh, so uh-huh. on one hand, her name is <laughs> Diane the Beautiful. Right. So already we know that um, at least in terms of how she's been named, her primary her primary asset is her beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that is interesting, though, is there's a moment where I wish I had the book with me because I did highlight this se- this sentence. There's a moment where he's talking about how he often underestimates her. He often thinks that she's not going to be as strong or as capable or as competent as mm-hmm. she is because mm-hmm. he's so used to the women of the above world who um, are so cultured that they have, that, that, that they don't really do anything. Right. And, and that's practically a Howardian, right? A yeah, Howardian. but what's also yeah. interesting about that, though, is the way I'm interpreting that is it sounds to me as though Edgar Rice Burroughs is saying that like women are just as capable as men, but society keeps them in a place where they're not really able to live that out. That's how kind of, that's kind of how I read that. Maybe I'm being overly generous there, but then there's also some, so that's kind of like interestingly, like kind of uh, some interesting feminism, but then there's definitely some very misogynistic stuff in here too, because there's the moment where uh, she's talking to, She's talking to David after uh, after she had been kidnapped by Huja, and they're they're potentially about to get kidnapped again. And she says something like, "Don't worry, I would sooner kill myself than let him harm me." <laughs> right, and, she has and, the, and he's uh, yeah. yeah, and he's grateful for that. Yeah. He would rather her die <laughs> than to have her, you know, harmed right. by Huja, which I'm assuming means raped. Right. And it's right, like right. if the person that I'm in love with might get raped by somebody i would rather have them after they've been raped and alive than have them just die to avoid being like you know spoiled by this Um, other person i guess that's the crux of a lot of this uh you know quote unquote uh heroic fiction right the whole movie the searches is built on this right he's going to go rescue his niece right john wayne is going to go rescue his niece he's been captured by the comanches but if he finds out that she's been you know gone native or married uh, married, he's going to kill her right (laughs) oh is that what happens (laughs) wow And so, well, yeah, but a bit of distinction here is like she's she's volunteering to kill herself. Like she's at least the motive power behind that. Right. Like you know, she's like, um, and it, and it's earlier in the book that um, they're both captives in the Mehar um, city, and and he doesn't he doesn't they're they're and they're going to try to send him off to find the great secret. Do we ever find out what that is? Like, is it like like DNA books or something? Anyhow, but oh like, yeah, it, he was he was trying to find. Um, because they, they were in Futra, and at the end of the first book, he had stolen their their mating secrets. Because okay. all of the Mehars are women, and long ago the men had been eradicated because they had discovered some some breeding secret that allowed them to continue to repopulate without men. But David Innes kind of ran away with that secret. But I, I forget. Do you remember Hoy exactly? Was was it a book? Were they chemicals? Like- um, I, I don't remember if it was a book or yeah, like a, a series of formulas or something like that. And I guess the question was whether they were still able to do that without that book or whether they needed to – Or they just like didn't want the secret to. to get out yeah. to the other 
people around there you know, yeah. in the world. So that, you know, it was sufficiently long ago, which is, you know, uh, you know, just last summer. Mm-hmm. So I have to go back to that, but. Um, okay. Well, yeah, sorry. So I, I got us off track, but, but so Diane, yes. right. So um, they're both trapped in the city. Uh, David doesn't want to leave her. Mm-hmm. They're trying to, the Mayhars are like, you know, go back, retrieve these secrets. And, and David say, no, no, I can't leave you. I can't leave you. And then she says, no, David, the Mayhars cannot harm us. If you are at Liberty, let them have their secret that you and I may return to our people and lead them to the conquest of all of Pellucidar. And then David comments, it was plain that Diane was ambitious and her ambition had not dulled her reasoning faculties. She was right. Nothing could be gained by remaining bottled up in Futra for the rest of our lives. And so it's, it's, it's to, to, to bleed into your generous reading of Burroughs. Um, you know, it's Diane. That's, that's the motive power here saying, I can take care of myself. You go out there. We need to come back and kill all these people. Like, like, you know, she's, she's a, at least in this paragraph, <laughs> you know, the 200 page book, you know, she's an actor, you know, r- really deciding the course of the, the, the novel. Yeah. Um, I think, and- sorry, go ahead. Um, so, I mean, as a broader look at this, whether we're talking about issues of race or, or gender in here, I think that Burroughs is full of unexamined assumptions. So he said a little bit, so that yes. leads to his in- inconsistency yes. as opposed to, for example, I think that Robert E. Howard is starting to develop this ideology of, you know, civilization is corrupt. And, mm-hmm. and so he's got more of a concrete a focused worldview, you know, and Lovecraft has his cosmicism. And I think Burroughs is a little bit more inconsistent in that regard. He's sort of very much of the sort of ending of the Wild West, which he actually grew up in, and the beginnings of our modern technological civilization that we are now living in. And he's sort of at that transition point. So he's taking one set of assumptions here and then one set of assumptions from, you know, what is now our our modern world. And it's sort of, it's at that uncomfortable point where they meet. As it, right. I think is where Burroughs is situated. Wow, I I really like that read. That's yeah. that's that's really cool. Um, but and then to go back what you were saying, Jeff, just a little while long, earlier. So um, now, that, whether even though they're reptilians, so like the the book ends with us eradicating this this female race. Right? That's, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> like like they, they if they're all, I mean, you know. It, and apparently a Mayhar could be mistaken for Diane the Beautiful. Um, <laughs> we did learn that at the end of at the Earth's core, that's for sure. That's hilarious. But, uh, you know, I mean, like the, there's these these uh, much, which must be matriarchal cities that they, they they shove bombs down into. They chase them out to the ocean, and then they just like unload on them with cannons. Right. But I mean, but but that's but but what Hoy was saying, like I don't I don't think Burroughs thought that through like yeah. i don't i don't know that the implications of a of an all-female race unable to reproduce and and we're going to slaughter them i don't i don't think he was you know thinking slaughter of females he was yeah. thinking slaughter of flying alligator right. I, and i bet he was like how can i make the mayhars weird oh here's one yeah. way we can make them all women because that's that's pretty right. weird right. but also but we want to kill weird things too they, because they, weird they, things are bad they speak yeah. they speak with their minds but it's not telepathy Right, right. Yeah, they're the fourth. What dimension. is it? Yeah, exactly. Right. They're they're using their sixth sense in the fourth dimension. Right. <laughs> That's <Right>. awesome. <laughs> I wish I knew what that meant. Right. So here's actually one of my favorite passages, which both is talking about the Mayhars and indicates sort of Burroughs' sort of inconsistency. And this is David describing what he thinks of the Mayhars. He goes, "While it had always been difficult for me to look upon these things." As other than slimy winged crocodiles, which, by the way, they do not at all resemble. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> also, one thing I want to mention is how fun was the prologue? 
Oh, that was so cool. So the that was actually really sweet, right? Yeah. So for those like, listening, the the, the book yeah, actually starts yeah. off with um, a person writing a letter to Edgar Rice Burroughs, saying that he's like found this device in the Sahara Desert. Uh, but saying that there's no way it could be real because what he's written is just a piece of trash. Right. Uh, <laughs> every, like everything he writes is just complete and utter garbage. Uh, but then Edgar Rice Burroughs writes back and says, no, actually, all of this is true. Let me come meet with you. Right. <laughs> yeah. This is like a – Right? Like so – I mean so do you want to like – but for, for the listeners, do you want to kind of recap that intro? Because it's so sweet what he finds in the desert, right? Yeah, sure. So they, they go to the desert and they do find the um, the – Tele- Wait, right, what? basically the telegraph box, or like a telegraph, telegraph key, box, right? yes. like buried under the sand. So then Edgar Rice right. Burroughs and David Innes are just like uh, clicking back and forth, and he ends up telling the entire story. And according to Edgar Rice Burroughs, this is this book is almost entirely in his own words. Right, David Innes' own right. words. It's a transcript of his own words. <laughs> so, so we can't be too critical. Right. But um, but so it's a little I mean, bit like the Book of Mormon that in that a, way. Right. Like a cool image. Like there you are. You're you're camped out in the desert. You lay your head down on a rock. <laughs> and then he goes back to it and it's not talking anymore. And it's like, this is so cool. <laughs> and then, you know, and it's, it's lost. And right. We don't see. I love that. Also, <laughs> but, the letter is written. <laughs> the letter is written. The guy goes, I am, you know, explorer. I know these areas and you know, you're full of, you're full of beans. And it's almost exactly like saying something on G plus or Facebook. And then getting some comment back saying, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, well, all right. So I, I think I've maybe been overly critical. Do you guys have moments that you really enjoyed in the book? I think there's a lot. I mean, again, I, I think it just doesn't hang. But um, I think the um, I like there's lots of little person. Um, what you call it? Uh, uh, personality bits of business. Like, you know, again, Abner's always like being too ambitious and he builds something crazy like this giant flat bottom boat that can't even get off the beach. That was fun. <laughs> oh, right, right, <laughs> and then he capsizes yeah. as soon as they get to the water. And then later on, when you find out when he actually they actually do build the felucas, you know, with the sails and stuff like that, it's like, oh, that's remarkably efficient. I didn't think Abner would would have built that. And it turns out it wasn't. It was the sort of the uh, the American Indian jaw. Ship, right, Jaw, who told him, no, no, you should build it like this because it's got oars and stuff like that. And he basically reined <laughs> Abner in, right? Right, but the, they they made like a bunch of models right. and they let Jaw pick amongst right. them, right? Well, this one's stupid, Abner. We're gonna go right. with this one. Yeah. So <laughs> there's lots of little like again little personality bits there, uh, you know. And then Ronnie and Raja, the hyena dons, have their own personalities. And then Gur Gur Gur, the chief of the lamb-like gorillas or the gorilla-like lambs, you know. He, <laughs> <laughs> so. I think there's a, I mean, there's a lot, there's mad invention in here, this book. So don't get me wrong there. It's just, it doesn't quite hang. And like the whole imperialistic last chapter where they basically conquer all the known areas of Pellucidar is almost like an afterthought in a sense. It's not, there's not a lot of drama there. Yeah. So I think that's. Yeah. yeah. It's just the rollout of technology. Yeah. And I think this is a good time for us to segue into the gaming portion of the library. So clearly the, uh, as you had mentioned earlier, Harley, the, the hollow earth theme is a is a common thing in gaming you know with uh mistara in uh in the known worlds mm-hmm. they have the hollow earth and you've written a whole hollow earth series of books for dcc uh, journey to the center of Earth. uh can you tell us a little bit about those and how you were inspired by this series oh yeah i mean um you know i, I think you know that what it what, what i was trying to get at um when I was when I was working with you know this 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 you know this hollow globe and what happens when you get through on the other side is is kind of treat 
um, you know, D and DS games, you know, for us it's DCC, but, um, what happens when you have a real mythic underworld and it's not just somewhere where you go down and, and you, you know, you fight through the orcs and you, you've done with the orc level and you go to the troll level and then there's the dragon level below that. But like, what if you imbue it with something, um, more alien, which I think is what Burroughs does really well. Um, you know, where, where, where you're, you're aliens, you know, you, you break through to the center of Pellucidar and you're the weird one mm-hmm. here. You're no, you're no longer at home. You can't find your way through this, this world where, you know, as long as they're standing on land, you know, any of the natives can, you know, point back to, you know, where their homeland mm-hmm. is. So um, whether or not I achieved it, I was, I was, I was, you know, we were trying to work towards that sense of a real mythic otherness um, or, you know, a mythic underworld as opposed to just um, uh, analogs of, of things that are on the top world that are you know slightly different here below. And were there any concepts from Pellucidar that you either really embraced or really rejected? Like, for example, since uh, in, in Pellucidar, there's just the glowing orb in the center, so there is no night. And time right. moves very strangely here. Um, people seem to know how to get around anyways. Were, were any of these ideas things that you particularly liked and worked with or that you were just like, eh, this doesn't really fit in what I'm working with? No, that's fair. I, th- I think it's it was all kind of like grist for the mill. Yeah. Um, when I was writing, you know, like if you, if you know, if, if listeners have played any in Lost Agarta, you know, there's definitely drawing off the Tranodons and, you know, the, the, you know, the oceans being this, this great mysterious thing. Like it was terrifying at the end of the book where they all got swept away from yeah. land. Yeah. It's like, dude, like, what's your plan now? <laughs> you lost your compass right. and, and, you know, we're screwed. Hopefully we just sail until we hit land. Um, you know, and, and so, and, and the, I, and I mean, and the, the Lost Agartans, I mean, they're, um, I, much like the the Mayhars, they they communicate through telepathy. To, so that's definitely you know drawn from there. Um, yeah, I, you know I, I think nothing explicitly. I'm a pretty unconscious writer when it comes to it. Like I'll you know all this stuff will get stored in the back brain and just kind of get jumbled around. And then when I try to reach in and pull something out, I'm not necessarily right. thinking where it comes. Now from. You've done some pretty epic landscapes. I mean, you've done Purple Planet as well, uh, which obviously has has oh, yeah. a, a Burroughs uh, you know influence by John Carter in the Venus series. But when you're doing something that's of this scale, you know, the Hollow Earth, or, you know, lost. Um, inside of Aerith or Purple Planet. Mm-hmm. Is there a single seed that gets you started? How do you get started with something that's, you know, of that scale and that size? Oh, I mean, it's, it's all, it's for my process, it's always just collecting images. Um, so we spoke about Frazetta earlier on. And so uh, uh, when I was working on Purple Planet, I, I just, I just started like sucking in Frazetta paintings and I sent them all off to Doug Kovacs and said like, let's make something cool like this. And then, so there's, there's the there's the visual component that I'm trying to emulate in my writing, um, more so than like a uh, a, a written p- analog that I'm trying to import. If that makes that any does. sense. So one thing that's interesting is when you look at the appendix and list, Pelu- the Pellucidar series is specifically the the first of the series that are listed as the th- the, the the series in which you should read. Uh, to be inspired for your gaming. Did, while you guys were reading through this, did you guys find anything that felt especially Dungeons and Dragons to you or especially kind of uh, early Dungeons and Dragons to you? 
Oh, completely. I want to give Hoya a chance to speak, but wait, come on. Like, uh, I mean, there's a couple aspects. Obviously, there's the domain game aspect. We, 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 yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? Um, yes. Companion right. set. Yes. Like, it's like green. We can move armies right. now. I'm 10th right. level. Like, let's go right. conquer. I built my stuff. palace. Right. But, but uh, yeah. also, ironically, because he's already sort of reached the do- sort of like one stage of the domain game, the beginning, and he, then he's sitting and he's like, wait. They're all going around here, but I'm not having an adventure. I got to go find Diane, right? So then, I'm just going to set out on my so own, right? <laughs> that is so. That I did pick up on that. You're totally right. Like you don't hang out with your army. You don't send your army to do stuff. You're still having adventures right. while your army is you conquering. Know. And something. I guess that's an interesting that thing that has not been introduced in DCC. And I mean, not that it should be necessarily because maybe it's not that game. But there is no domain game in DCC mm. as of yet. Nah, you're totally you know? right. Yeah. Um, you know what do you do when you reach tenth level? Okay, maybe you're not just managing fortresses that's boring but what does a king of 10th level you know what does conan do when he becomes king or what is david in so mm-hmm. you know maybe that's something mm-hmm. that can be explored further at some future point in dcc either officially or amongst the community as a whole yeah yeah no it'd be great yeah. to have a third-party publisher do something along yeah. those lines that'd be i mean that'd be yeah that's a ton yeah. of fun um I, I don't know how about you know jeff any thoughts for you or how it aligned up with gaming? Well, sure. I can definitely see that looking through the original monster manual, you definitely, there are like entire sections of, you know, pl- like tons and tons of Pleistocene megafauna, yeah. uh, tons oh, yeah. and tons of dinosaurs. Yeah. You know, I definitely think that um, Gygax must have gotten a big kick out of the idea of these people kind of like roaming around uh, fighting these things. Also, there's throughout Pellucidar, it's often referring to how man is more often the hunted than the hunter and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. kind of how dangerous the wilderness is. Mm-hmm. And I also think that's something that's very Dungeons and Dragons. What's interesting to me, though, is in At the Earth's Core, whenever David Innes was exploring the wilderness, he was constantly running into new threats and oftentimes he was either completely naked or had hardly anything at all with him. So it was very, very uh, threatening and challenging. But then at the beginning of this book, he's fully dressed, has uh, has his bandolier on, right. and he's got his express rifles, and he's just like mowing through the with jungle. pistols, yeah. Yeah, so he, they, they even just like hand wave him. There's a moment there where they're just like, yeah, and he encountered a, a new big vicious monster every day, but he dealt with them. Uh, uh-huh. So it, it also is kind of interesting to me to think about as a uh, judge, dungeon master, game master – the, the random encounters that you encounter in the wilderness, mm. if you are if you're so powerful and or so properly um, equipped for the occasion, should you maybe just like hand wave a lot of that stuff? Uh, but and only really worry about it if you're kind of either low level or totally unequipped. Um, mm-hmm. There's another way to think of that. Um, that's that would certainly works for low level and it makes it a very deadly game. But then it means that if there's an objective you want them to get to, then they may never get there. Mm-hmm. But the other way to think about that, and this is what the players hate, 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 we've talked about this before, is a way to wear down their resources. Mm-hmm. So, yes, there's an encounter here. It doesn't use much. But, you know, every time you do, okay, well, that's one more precious bullet that's gone, right? Yeah. That's one more charge off your uh, wand of lightning bolt, right? Mm-hmm. So wear them down uh-huh. to when they have that big challenge that they're not just going to automatically steamroll over it, right? Yeah, because in, in this story, there were times where David Innes then lost his rifles and right. lost his guns. Right. And then <laughs> right. suddenly, suddenly we're paying attention to those little encounters again. Right. Right. Burroughs right. isn't right. hand-waving those moments anymore. Right. right. Um, yeah, again, it's very difficult to see if Burroughs had a, a, a narrative, like, um, he was going to build this, this sort of 
sine wave of activity, mm -hmm. right? Um, but it does end up working out. And can we make it work in our games? Uh, I think DCC is more flexible for that. I think DCC players are more... Um, uh, the nature of the game, as produced by the adventures that you've written in the game itself, Harley, uh, I think it's more flexible and allows more swinginess like that, whereas something like, I don't know, um, Pathfinder or 3rd Edition, where you're on a sort of steady power curve, you would be more mm -hmm. resistant to having your powers, your capabilities suddenly removed. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> right. But whereas DCC, for example, you always have your luck was always wearing down mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So I think DCC people are... are, are uh, yeah. And your physical stats are constantly wearing yeah, down because a, you keep going to zero hit points. Right, if you're and... a magic user of some sort. So <laughs> that's why there's no your adventures aren't doing anything at tenth level because they have yeah, their luck is like a three. Uh -huh, their strength is a four. Stop your entire. But I but I think I think there's the, also the episodic nature of some DCC games can you know allows for you know a hand waving for that. You know, because you're fifth level, you know, anything you encounter in the wilderness, if it's tough enough to challenge you it deserves its adventure in its own right. Ergo, you know, we are now at, you know, at the, this enormous mm -hmm. gate, you know, that's uh, allows us an entrance to the earth's core. You know, I, I don't, I don't think there's a cognitive distance there where, whereas, you know, is, uh, you know, if I'm fifth level, all of a sudden I'm getting fifth level random encounters in the wilderness. That's just like a bummer. It's like, ah, oh, dude, what have I worked this hard for? I might as well stayed first level and just fought works. <laughs> and I think actually you have a good point there. I think DCC, um, yeah, and bur and burrows are a good fit because of that sort of episodic feel. Um, whereas, for example, you are very conscious of every step of the journey in Lord of the Rings, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> right, of going uh, through that terrain, and, and, and so I think that uh -huh. DCC. I mean, Daniel Bishop may argue otherwise, but I think DCC, at least in feel, I think you can make a good Middle Earth game out of it. But it doesn't feel like a Middle Earth game, at least without digging a little deeper. Sure, you know, in my mind, and mm -hmm. I, I could be wrong about that. Maybe I'm just not being imaginative enough. You know in that that regard but i think that the fit between burrows the sort of burrows episodic nature and the swinginess of like at one moment you're on top of the world and one moment you're in dire peril seems to line up with dcc very well yeah so i would agree on. with that yeah, yeah yeah um so what other um kind of unmined territory do you see in this book there harley um wow that's a that's a that's a fun idea you know it'd be you know what the first thing that comes to mind is you know what what would it look like if we put DCC characters into this sort of, uh, you know, because the journey to the center of Aerith doesn't really pull it. Like the land down there isn't to be conquered. It's 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 like you know the source of all you know original magic. And so you, you go down there, you encounter it, and then you come back out. Like you're always going to get kicked back out of the mythic underworld. Yeah. It's not a place where you go down there and rule. And so you know what would what would a DCC game look like where you know it was the intent that you're going to go to this place. This this wilderness that deserves mm -hmm. to be conquered and murder and, hobo uh, your way through the Mayhars. <laughs> shove bombs in the cities of women <laughs> and, uh, and chase them out to sea. Um, yeah, I think I think there's 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 that there's that. I don't know. It's it's yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. It's interesting. It's interesting for sure. I I yeah. So I have an idea. For, okay. So, uh, one thing that while reading this really stuck out for me was this kind of idea of kind of your characters earning boons. So it's like, there's this moment where, although, uh, so he, he brings back, uh, what is it? To Alsa or to Lhasa, the, 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 the Mehar who was brought up to the earth right. as Diane, he brings her back to, Putra. to, oh, to Putra. Yeah, yeah, nice. Putra. And because of that, 
he ends up getting this uh, this this like kind of one time boon from the Mayhars, where they're like, okay, you you treated her with honor. Mm-hmm. We appreciate that. We are not going to murder you. Uh, we will let you go free this one time. And also, there's a similar thing too, because oh, because because in that moment. I could really easily see your characters getting all murder hobo and killing the Mayhar and not bringing her back to the center right. of the earth. So you're giving the you're giving the characters an in story benefit to treating this character with mercy and compassion. Mm-hmm. And similarly with Raja, uh-huh. you know, when we're first introduced to Raja, it's because David Innes and the people here he's with are being attacked by a whole pack of these hyena don mm-hmm. and. By the end of it, all that's left is David and this one hyena don, and they have tumbled over the side of the cliff together. Uh, the hyena don is dying and is drowning, and David Innes is looking at the hyena don and seeing it's, it's dog his, eyes, big dog yeah, the big dog eyes. <laughs> and even though he recognizes he might end up regretting this because he might end up dying by helping this thing, he brings it onto the onto the shore. He sets its broken leg That's and cool. he feeds it. That's cool. And then it ends up becoming like kind of his like semi-animal companion. Yeah. So I, I like this idea of allowing your characters to treat other creatures with compassion and mercy and allowing for that to be a fun, exciting, in, uh, an exciting opportunity in the story to bring something back to the character. That's, that's so cool. There's a, there's a quality of like monster characterization there that's absent Mm -hmm. definitely in a lot of my games you know like you know if if, you know if these things are the bad guys and you're gonna kill them down to the very last one um and yeah so so to have had this encounter with this hyena don and then and then make peace with it is is, that's a really cool yeah like you said the boons the boon and 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 are the pcs committed to killing every last one of these guys and and the inverse like you know if if pcs come into my little orc hole and slaughter you know all 30 of me like 20 years from now you know once i've raised my orc army i'm gonna roll over keep on the borderlands like i'm coming back yeah (laughs) but yeah no just the the the, i think what you're getting at is like um uh, a, a quality of like logical conclusions that result from the PC's actions for good mm-hmm. or for ill. And most often yeah. they're ill because we're murder hoboing and not murder hobo splinting, like hobo first aid. <laughs> um, <laughs> hobo splinting. <laughs> but, uh, but, but yeah, yeah but, just but rewarding that kind of behavior. Conclusions and, then, and then reward, not re- rewarding or punishing, you know, the PCs for their actions. I mean, that'd be sweet, right? Like, what if you tracked every single thing that your, your characters had gone through every adventure and like, you know, all right, you know, from Sailors of the Starless Sea, I'm going to pull this out, and this is going to come out, you know, five adventures from now. And and uh, from Emerald Enchanter, this is going to come out, you know, two adventures from now. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, we sort of see that with patrons, but I don't know. Yeah, like, you know, we're not 12. We, we don't get to game every week. You know, if, if, if we had more consistency of gaming, it'd be so much fun to, like, do what right. you're saying and really track those yeah. movements. And those- right. I think that, um, you know, obviously some new, more new school games are very explicit to allow for that things, you know, fake points and stuff like that. And, and that obviously uh, original Dungeons and Dragons um, and, and maybe DCC are less so. The main mechanics that you have to sort of reward people are XP. Mm-hmm. And But I think you could still do it because you could have, uh, you know, award luck points for something that you think is particularly in character or, you know, maybe we don't, you know, traditionally DCC is just given luck points, but let's think about maybe we can give people a personality point 
for being in character and doing something, you know, and have their personality go up. Yeah, possibly. You know, I think uh, I'm kind of more drawn to the idea of not necessarily making it about game mechanics and making it more about the the story and the fiction of uh, that we're sharing together. Because if you're going to make a decision in the fiction that um, could potentially, as as Harley was saying, either uh, have a reward or a punishment down the line in the story, I think that's more exciting to me than just a plus one or a minus one on something. I, I get what you're saying. And and what I'm just saying is that if you're using the points, it's a sort of um, to use that as a mechanical incentive to do, to do that. And I'm not mm. saying that we should always happen, but mm. um, what, you're, what you're calling for requires sort of maybe working with a consistent group of players oh, sort yeah. of on your same wavelength. Absolutely, you're right. And, and, and sort of and can pick up the thing that you're putting down uh-huh. and vice versa. And so that can be a little bit more difficult. And, and, uh, and I, I'm, I'm loath to say, oh, yeah, we need a mechanic for everything. I'm, I've moved sure. away from that as a gamer as well. You know, I used to be very much into GURPS, and yes, I just don't have the time to focus on the, yes. the minutia of that anymore. Um, yeah. But you have to at least make clear what the incentives for the players are, even if they're not mechanical. Mm-hmm. Say, okay. You know, your character seems to be, you know, a priest, uh, a priest of justicia. You definitely believe, you know, cleric of justicia. So you believe in justice. So let's play that through. Let's let's work with that. Yeah. Like, what is what does it mean to be a cleric? You know, uh, you have, I guess, the disapproval mechanic. So maybe you can apply disapproval, even if it's not for spellcasting. Say, you know what? You just did that thing. That's not what a cleric of justicia would do. I'm going to give you two points of disapproval for the day. Sure. (laughs) You know, right. Um, I can see that. You know, Jeff, what you're talking about, I think it works really well less in like um, overland wilderness adventures, but like if you get into an urban adventure where it's factions, yeah, you know, and tracking, well, I pissed off the overlords, so the overlords, you know, he's angry at me, but, you know, the, the daughter of the general, I rescued her from, you know, thing X last week. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the general's going to intercede on my behalf when when our thief is about to have his hand chopped off for... Sure. You know, like, you know, when, when, you have, when you have a consistent group of factions it, it makes a lot more you know dcc is all over the place like you know one one day you're on the purple planet the next year on the you know in the center of Aerith, and whatever you did on the purple planet you know <laughs> unfortunately <laughs> that's nothing to do with the center of Aerith. Sure. but um but if you're playing in lankmar or punjar or, you know, you yeah. know whatever city or water deep what have you um it'd be cool to like you know track factions interactions with each other and then and then how those interactions affect and can be impacted by the pc's actions and also i think if you think that that's too much to track yourself i also think it's fine to relieve yourself of the responsibility of that and in that moment you can say you know what i really liked what you did with the mayhar there what what i want to tell you is the next time you might be able to get a conceivable boon from the mayhars remind me and uh-huh, uh-huh. and we'll work with it so that's I, a good idea. I might not even ha- I, that way. I don't have to keep track of a hundred post-it notes of, right. of potential things that can come back later. The player can tell me, Oh, Jeff, I know we're captured by the Mayhurst right now, but remember you said that they owe me a favor. I'm like, that's yeah. absolutely. Right. So because totally of that, right. this thing happens, right, right. you know, it, it, yeah. Yeah. Cause as players, we love treasure, right? So totally. I don't care if it's a plus one sword or 50 gold pieces or a boon with the Mayhars. Like you tell me I have something. Exactly. I want to write it down on my, and I'm going to cash that in at the most <laughs> opportune moment or get You're really totally mad right. at myself that I forgot to do it. That's a good idea. Put it on the player. Yeah. I, I actually uh, agree with that. I'm, uh, you know, running some pretty long adventure now that got much longer than I expected it to, but I'm actually fine with offloading a lot of, those responsibilities onto the players. Um, yeah. I, I think as long as it's something that we understand that it's not breaking immersion 
And so I get what you're saying. Like you don't want it to be like a concrete like point or a widget or a Benny because sometimes you feel like that's very game mechanical mm-hmm. as opposed to being sort of a natural consequence of being in the world and the, and the actions we, that we've done in that world. Yeah. Um, that's cool. Well, that's, that's the balance of your two ideas, right? right? So like um, logical consequences are hard to track and remember when we're only in this game once a week or once a month or what have you. And, and it kicks us out of the game if it's just like plus one to Mayhar interactions. <laughs> so having, having it you know, exist somewhere between those two where they rub up against each other and it's like, I don't know, plus to Mayhar, which on the player sheet. Yeah, it's that, it's that balance that doesn't kick you out of the game, but at the same time doesn't require the judge knowing everything all the time. Yeah. Another thing I liked was there was a moment where David Innes, I forget I forget when this happened, but he ended up, I think, going into a village or something, and somebody recognized him. And they're like, oh, oh yeah, yeah. I know you. You're the, guy who I saw, I, you're the guy who I saw fighting in the arena in the last book. And yeah, that happened a couple of times. It was jaw, right? Or something. Yeah, or there, there, were, there were a couple of times that people recognized David from things that he had done previously. Right. And I got to say, I'm not good at as my as my as as a judge, as my characters are advancing and have been going from town to town mm-hmm. and just doing epic, crazy things. I just assume that they're anonymous in every new town they arrive in. But as they're getting more powerful, they're probably not. Right. Their reputation might precede them. Oh, that exactly. Is so and there, there's that probably is so somebody cool. who was in that last town who right. saw that thing that happened. And now they're here because like they're visiting their sick aunt or something. Right. And so either that really amazing thing you did or that really fucked up thing you did right. has like followed you to this town. Right. Well, I think that may be partly the nature of the fact that you're running these public games where you don't always have the same players. Yeah. And so that's so that from both sides, it's hard to remember that. Yeah. Right? Whereas if you have a, slem- a semi-regular group or at least one or two people who are pretty consistent, and even if you have an open table and other people are coming, you know. Actually, that reminds me. So Harley, you mentioned you were running a group of kids in a public library, right? Running games. Yeah. Oh, yes. And- yes. If you ever had the chance to run for like the fifth, sixth, seventh grade set right. is totally, right. they're, they're, they're amazing. Right. And you get to, you get to watch like the evolutions of, of role playing right. as you right. go. Um, you know, I, I had a, I had a character or a player whose character, one of his characters in the start of the funnel was, he's like, Oh dude, I got four of these. All right. I'm going to name you. I like trains. And now by the end, he's like, well, you know, his character's first level. He's actually looking for a cool name. Cause all of a sudden his character's cool. <laughs> and so you get to see the players, you know, advance between, you know, I'm just going to stab everything I see to, oh, I, I have a personality here. I have a place. In yeah. this world. It's totally right. fun. It's a blast. Well, I'm definitely in favor of that so, sort of emergent character as opposed to saying, oh, you have, you know, this is your character and you have to stay true to these five traits that you have, you know, you know, sure. you know certain or, things are kind of sort of like what would be natural. You look at this per, you know, character, it's like, oh, he's a, a wizard, but his intelligence is a little low. Maybe he was just very studious and not a good, not particularly brilliant, but you know, or something like that, you know, you can read uh, oh, yeah. stats, but. I remember back at the peak of my 3.5 days where I would create a 3.5 character, but know exactly the feet tree path that I planned to go down. Oh, I'd build it all in advance. You had to. And then I would also write like a, like a, like a two story back, a two page backstory for the character too, that included all this information that was never going to come out in the gameplay. <laughs> and I didn't even remember it like while we were playing it. It's sure. all this wasted effort. But, it, but if you didn't plan out your feet trees, like you were, you were like, you weren't an effective player or you're not as effective as you could have been. I mean, that was never my style of game, but I understand, you know, the concept of a feat tax and why is this, you know, Harley, don't come to our game. Your character is not optimized for the role we want yeah. you to play. What, you're eighth level and you can't even cleave? What? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, that's 
one of the things that DCC does so uh-huh. well, for better or worse. I mean, it was never intentional, but like, you know, these zero level suboptimal characters that get spit out of the funnel that we're just in love with. And yeah, he's my warrior. He's fifth level now and he has right. an eight strength. Why right. are you asking? Mm-hmm. It's right. Sometimes awful. it's like your best and, character is the one that dies in the final, and you're stuck with the worst of it. Oh, dude, yeah. always, always, <laughs> always. So, working with yeah. this group of, of middle schoolers, do you um, uh-huh. do you see them now also becoming interested in the fiction or or the the stuff, the influences? Yes, of- yeah, and 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 it's yeah. I mean, the, the kids are just sweet. Like, um, they're you know, I, I have a pretty loose play style where um, you know th- things will come up because they they don't know what they can't do yet, right? Like no one's taught these kids that well you you can only cast spells once you're first level or you know like the, the the these the the children having never played before don't have any parameters that they're trying to adhere to and so their imaginations are like just like open wide and they're going to try anything and everything um, they haven't been you know like beaten down into you know. You know, we, I have a wizard who's trying to learn spells. <laughs> it's like I don't know. Let's see how that works. And and so yeah, it's just it's a it's a really sweet age to run kids at because they're so enthusiastic and passionate mm-hmm. about it um i had this one girl like she was like no we my parents are at a coffee shop you're coming back next saturday at 8 a.m we're gonna play for 24 <laughs> hours you know they just like they, they love yes. this stuff. and you know, the way i remember loving it you know the the way i remember you know you find your first cloak of mm-hmm. elven kind or um or you know you know you you don't have a tenth level character yet, but you're still mapping out you know your elven city and where you're going to put the catapults and the ballistas <laughs> and you know, drawing it on the graph paper. You know they're just it's that it's that space mm-hmm. of engagement that it's such it's such a treat to run for. That's yeah. amazing. It's amazing, and hopefully we'll have uh, be able to talk to some of them uh, as they become uh, you know experienced gamers and <laughs> bring the next generation up there. Enthusiasm and influence. Yeah. Uh, well, we have to uh, wrap up soon. We're getting to near the end of the episode. Any last thoughts on Pellucidar or anything else that you want to tell us, Harley? Uh, just, uh, you know, thank you guys so much for your podcast. And it's a real treat to privilege to, uh, to be on and, and weigh into something yeah, like this. Well, so thank you very much. Yeah. And I, I do have a last thought. I okay. would like to say that if you're listening to this podcast and you are not familiar with Dungeon Crawl Classics and you want to try it out, you absolutely must pick up St- Sailors on the Starless Sea. It is written by Harley Stroh. <laughs> it is the iconic zero-level funnel. And it is it is absolutely, it lives up to the grandiose expectations that everybody else is. People always praise this 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 work and they absolutely should because it's 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 stunning. It's brilliant. It's a lot of fun. And it's a great introduction to the system. One of these days I'll get to a game. <laughs> yes, yes. I've run it a few times, you, but yeah, you've not you've not been there. Okay, so uh, <laughs> yes, all Thank right. You, so coming up uh, next, uh, we will have Robert E. Howard and Alex Bragg's Camps, Conan the Freebooter, and then after that, we'll have Fritz Leiber's Swords in the Mist. Nice. (laughs) Okay. If you want to get in touch with us, how can they do that, Jeff? Well, you can email us at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. You can also visit our website at appendixnbookclub.com. And you can look for us on Twitter and Facebook and G. We're around those places as well. Uh, If you listen to us on any of the major podcast platforms like Google Play or uh, Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It really helps people find us. And uh, we hope to see you soon. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed.